This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of the Tom and Bob Show, where each week we discuss best practices in the field of customer experience management. I'm Tom DeWitt, Director of CXM at MSU, and I'm joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Bob Keipel, Vice President of CX of M and retired Global CX Executive with General Motors. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Okay. Well, welcome to another episode of the Tom and Bob Show. I'm Tom DeWitt, and I'm joined by... Bob Keipel. Uh, we're we're really happy today to welcome Lou Carbone. Um, Lou is the owner and founder of Experience Engineering, um, an experience uh, consultancy that's been around since 1991. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about um, Lou's background and its finding. Um, uh, our our paths actually crossed back in 2004 when I bought. Lou's book clued in how to keep customers coming back again and again and um, really served to inspire me um, to pursue um, a career in, in, in customer experience management. So I'm really happy to have, have Lou here on the, the show. Now, Lou, you've got an interesting background. It goes way back to when you were a reporter and a, and a, and a bureau chief. And then somehow you made a segue into, into advertising and then um, experience management. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and your decision to, keep, to create experience engineering? Absolutely. Um, I started out as a journalist. And as a journalist, you're putting puzzles together. You're gathering information and data. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't happen much in me in in reporting today uh and journalism has changed so much but it was gathering facts presenting facts and you really had to search for them so this idea of curiosity and what's behind what is being told to me uh fascinated me and uh I met someone who said to me, what the hell are you doing working in the, you know, in, in a, a low paying industry with writing capabilities, um, you should be in advertising. <laughs> and uh, it was a gentleman that I met. I had uh, two thirds of my stomach removed uh, for a bleeding ulcer when I was 23. I was recovering from that and he said, what the hell do you need the stress of a deadline every day where every day the work is wiped out that you did and you start all over the next day? So in a short train ride from New York to Boston, I was convinced by this gentleman to pursue a career in advertising. And uh, the greatest blessing there was an interview uh, that I did. Uh, the, the, the last thing in journalism that I did was an interview with a gentleman named George McGinnis, who just died at age 93. Um, and he was the last Imagineer hired by Walt Disney. And he had come back to this little town and uh, was going to marry a young lady. 
And I was asked if uh, I would do an interview with him. Well, the interview went on for almost three and a half hours. And then he invited me to his home on the morning of his wedding to share photographs of the people mover and of Space Mountain and projects that he was working on. He created Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I became fascinated with that way of thinking, but put it in a back burner. And then all of a sudden, while I'm in my career in advertising, I became uh, very involved with Disney because uh, I was at an ad agency that had four clients. And then when I went to National Car as vice president of marketing, uh, a very deep relationship with Disney and got to work with Disney. And it also worked with Howard Johnson's, which was a restaurant chain in the U.S. that was the dominant restaurant chain and uh, in the 50s and 60s, and I got to work with them in the last six months of their existence. But don't let that scare you as, as we talk forward. Uh, but I was so fascinated by Disney because I watched so many organizations go there and do what people do in best practices, which is try to rip off or steal things or not. I, I, let me take the strength of the word steal. They would borrow things and think, boy, this is going to change my, my organization if I call people guests. And nothing major would happen. And what I discovered there was what I call the next practice, which is understanding the unconscious needs of a customer that they are not even aware of, and then embedding clues into that experience. And so Disney uh, was a cartoonist and had four frames originally to create this emotional connection with you. And the clues that were embedded in those four frames had to snap together. So uh, from that, uh, I went to National Car Rental as Vice President of Marketing. Uh, we developed Emerald Isle, where you choose your own vehicle. It only took people 20 years that were competitors to figure out the unconscious power of selecting your own vehicle. Mm -hmm. But we did that well before. We also moved and created the first electronic rental agreement and the first uh, counter bypass system. And I became fascinated by all of this and uh, began to realize that my career in advertising and marketing, the reality of what people experienced and what we promised in advertising and brand were so far apart. And uh, what was so amazing about Disney was what you got was more than you even expected in terms of emotional connection and the, the un, unbelievable desire to go back and tell other people about your experience. And uh, that led to uh, the creation of this philosophical mindset of experience management and our particular way of doing that is what I refer to as experience engineering. And uh, from that, ended up doing work uh, and teaching this at the IBM Advanced Business Institute with Stephen Heckel, who forced me to write an article. And I had clients that were like, oh, don't give up this secret sauce. This is like <laughs> magical stuff. And uh, I had one guy who said, you're an absolute fool for uh, wanting to publish an article. 
Had I not done that with Steve, and I thank him so very, very much, Steve was an expert in adaptive enterprise and was a futurist at IBM and also the head of strategic studies at the Institute. And I served as an adjunct faculty member there, uh, talking about experience management. Uh, Joe Pine was talking about mass customization and Steve was talking about adaptive enterprise and, and the need for being adaptive. And we felt these were disciplines that were gonna be required at the turn of the century. And uh, so we started talking about this before the turn of the century and, and working in this space. So uh, hey, you're, I have, you're a genuine, I have, genuine pioneer, genuine pioneer. That's awesome. Um, can we get a little more detail? Like, um, can you talk about the t kind of work that you do with your team and at, at, at Experience Engineering? What's an example to just give us a flavor for the kind of work you do? Yes. What we call uh, the way that we approach experience development is learn, create, do. And what I found is so many organizations don't create a systematic approach that they use a bolt-on approach. And I found this to be true when I was on the client side that people would come in and present research and then suddenly um, you bring in a sales promotion company and they say, well, we need to do research. And you're like, well, we just did research. Well, we've got our own, and I just looked at all the waste. So what I wanted to do was develop an organization that could take experience management as a base philosophy in terms of how do I enhance that value following Peter Drucker's concept of create the value and the profit is the reward. So, um, but I realized that it had to work as a system rather than a bunch of bolt on pieces. And that it wasn't just about metrics and fixing things that were broken. It was the ability to learn, but to be very, very creative, understand unconscious needs, and this is where my work with Jerry Zaltman over the years uh, at the Laboratory of the Consumer Mind in terms of uh, work that we actually did around uh, automobile buying for Vince Baraba at GM where we did PET scans. So we do everything from getting to unconscious thought to let's use those unconscious frameworks that come from deep metaphors to what are the emotions that need to be derived? And then how do we focus the design of the experience on connecting those unconscious synapses over and over to create those emotional connections? Mm -hmm. And then how do you get that done in an organization and move through the process of acculturation? So you move from awareness of it to, hey, this is kind of interesting to building advocates. And how, do, how does a client or, or a potential client um, come to realize that they need your help? Are they already sort of predisposed towards your thinking or do they have an aha moment or they have a big problem and they just need help? How does it happen? It happens in a multitude of ways. Uh, but often uh, it is someone who is, is in a sticky situation uh, but we've also been called into organizations like John Deere, where we created a basically a brand ambassador, understanding brand experience and spreading that across the entire global system 
uh, in terms of how to design experiences. And the one, one of the experiences that was taken on was first day at work that is written about in Chief, uh, Chip and um, Dan Heath's book, uh, The Power of Moments. Uh, actually write about our John Deere work and cite, uh, somehow my name got cited in it as the consultant that they hired. But um, the ability to take an organization, everyone wants to be an Apple. There isn't a company out there that wouldn't tell you, I want to be an Apple, I want to be an Amazon, I want to be this. And yet they don't understand that fixing broken things won't get you there. <laughs> that it really takes getting inside the maze of the mind of the customer, their unconscious thought, their emotional needs, and then fulfilling those with clues and signals that actually create this emotional connection. And the more often you, you create those synapses connecting, the more memorable the experience becomes and the more embedded it becomes to where you become an Apple addict, if you will. It's it's similar to addiction to a degree. Well, you, you bring you bring up you bring up clues, and I know there's central uh, to your to your thinking and your and your your practice. Uh, can you please explain to the listeners um, what what clues are and why they're critical to understanding and designing the customer experience? Because I know in, in your book you talk about different types of clues. Exactly. There are humanic clues, mechanic clues, and functional clues. And an example of a functional clue would be uh, if I go into a Starbucks, I expect if I order a hot coffee that the coffee is going to be hot, uh, that it's consistent. So there are certain functional aspects that I must pay attention to. The second uh, area is the mechanic clues. And when Howard Schultz first built the early Starbucks and they were able to grind coffee in them, he created this thing that would distribute the scent of coffee being grinded. And it was just like a, a, a catch vent over the top mm -hmm. that looked like a, a circular thing that would shoot that's sent out into the Starbucks. Uh, those are what I would call mechanic clues. And then there are the humanic clues that are everything from the language that we use, we've developed language. Uh, it, at Apple, for example, I know that the word frozen is a verboten phrase that you never say that a computer is frozen. And this is different than scripting. It's understanding the power of words and phrases. And those are the humanic clues. Gestures are a very critical part of that. Um, I recently was at the American Inn, and uh, the example that I use, uh, it's actually called the America Club in Kohler, Wisconsin. And I love the example that I've for all these years and almost every presentation I do, I use uh, an example of the toilet paper triangle. And that if I, I checked into a room that there was no toilet paper triangle, and I'm beginning to wonder, then did they forget to clean my room? Did someone use the toilet they've got here? Because that, 
that little clue is very reassuring. Yeah. Uh, or the bedtime thing where a motel or hotel will put Inspector McGruff on your pillow and what to do in case of a fire, leave your valuables in the safe deposit box. That's not the way I want to go to bed. Whereas you stay somewhere else, there are mints on the pillow. They're, in fact, they'll even put a card on the pillow that they'll cook breakfast for you in the morning. And that's a hell of a lot more reassuring because they're taking the bet that you're going to be alive rather than burned alive. <laughs> <laughs> now, you bring up a good point. I know in your book you draw a distinction between um, what are essentially the, 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 the rational and emotional responses to clues. Why, why make that distinction? Oh, this is so critical. And I, this is the future of what I call experience 2.0. And... <laughs> This area of experience 2.0 is the beneficiary uh, in what we've been taking advantage of for almost now as a result of with unconscious is the advancements in neuroscience and psychology and what is basically uh, some people refer to it as behavioral economics, et cetera, et cetera. But we actually make decisions in our unconscious and create intellectual alibis. So the decision is actually made unconsciously before we consciously make the decision. And it starts in the limbic pathways of the brain. So uh, the idea of these clues that are emotional, uh, that touch these basic frameworks that are in the limbic parts of our brain, and there are probably uh, according to work that Jerry Zaltman did, and when I participated in that work, uh, about 18 different frameworks that we emotionally respond to in our primitive brain. Uh, and those frameworks then affect our emotions. So clues affect our emotions that influence our attitudes that drive our behaviors. And it's that linkage, that chain. And experience 2.0 is on the front, the front end of that, understanding the clues, and then understanding how you have the emotions and meet the emotional needs of people honestly, and then attitudes and behaviors. And most of where experience 1.0 has been is in understanding attitude and behavior. So I, I can imagine drawing this distinction between clues and, and the rational and emotional outcomes of those clues could be a critical tool to designing experiences and purposely integrating those in each touch point with a desired rational and emotional response, right? Precisely. That becomes your North Star, what we call an experience motif. That is the North Star for alignment of the design along that spectrum. And this came about at one point with some IBM executives. I asked them, that's not one of the IBM executives. <laughs> <back then." laughs> I'm looking for dinner. But uh, with the IBM executives, I had 13 executives in front of me. And I said, uh, what do you want people to feel? Um, what do you want people to feel uh, in the experiences that they have? And out of the 13, only two had the same answer. So this idea of alignment within an organization uh, is so critical because 
it not only helps in design, but it helps in focusing the culture, the culture of the, of the organization. Uh, we had four oaks trees fall on, on the house, and the workers just arrived to look at the backyard. Uh, our dog, dog, and, your, and your dog's marking their presence, acknowledging and, their presence. She's making herself known. Oh, look. Come over here. There you go. There you go. Stay now, here. <laughs> uh, be, before Bob asks a question, um, you know, there aren't a lot of people out there in academia or in the in the what I call the real world that discuss the relationship between emotions and loyalty. What are you, but you do? You did a long time ago. What 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 is that relationship? Uh, yeah, in fact. Um, I've done a lot of work with academics and written papers with Len Berry from Texas A&M. Uh, Len talks about clues in his work. Uh, we've published an MIT Sloan uh, management review and a number of academic publications over the years. And I find that, um, that uh, academic, we have a ton of citations, unfortunately, most of the citations are from outside the U.S. Mm. And I'm actually uh, amazed that academics seem to be more um, stuck in a legacy system here mm. in the States than they are outside the U.S. in terms of uh, entertaining new thoughts about the future. Yeah, I mean, it's and, interesting. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about NPS um, with net promoter score, which is supposed to be a true indicator of loyalty and, and saying it doesn't, those numbers don't always hold and, and satisfaction isn't always, um, while it's in, high levels of satisfaction don't always result in loyalty. Do you think emotions really fill that void and help to explain, explain a that? Absolutely. Um, before Fred Reichelt wrote uh, The Loyalty Effect, um, he was a student of Sasser and Haskett up at the Harvard Business School. And I brought Avis up to meet Fred when he was with um, Bain. And Fred was just about to publish The Loyalty Effect, which said that people that check off top box scores, um, 60 to 80% of them would actually defect. And when I had a conversation with Fred after he wrote the uh, ultimate question, I said, what, what brought you to, to this? And he said, because CEOs couldn't relate to the rational thought that anybody who checked off top boxes would, be, would not be loyal. And he said, even those statistics proved it. So he then... Uh, at uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, learned about the way that they measured customer impact, which was on this basis of recommendation. And I believe what Fred introduced into the marketplace, because in most organizations, NPS has been driven from the top versus the bottom. Uh, true researchers are worried about sample size and, and all of that. But what I think Fred introduced was an emotional notion that set 
in executives' heads that said, oh, emotionally, I understand what recommending something is like and that I have to be bonded to it in some way. And what they don't realize is the way that they're bonded to it is on an unconscious and emotional basis in terms of making that recommendation. So I think that um, that's what Fred hit on with NPS. And yet there's still a ton of debate over, uh, over the impact. And, you know, there's also a debate over the return on investment in experience management. And I'm like, please, it's a return on strategy, gentlemen. Yeah. If you want to achieve this strategy of being customer-driven, which is different than being customer-centric, it's getting inside the maze of the mind of the customer and driving your business to meet those needs mm. versus the whole world of make and sell versus sense and respond. And, uh, you know, I think that, that this understanding, we're beginning to see more and more. I mean, honestly, um, Tom and Bob, when I first started talking about experience management, people looked at me like I landed from Mars 30 years ago. Honestly, they would look at me like, what the hell is this guy doing with toilet paper? <laughs> now, now, now everybody knows about it. They're just trying to figure out how to do it. How to do it. We've been doing it. 30 years and uh, have understood that it's learning, creating, and doing, and creating that acculturation, that this is a way of doing business and not a bolt-on. Yep. Can I pick up on that very last thing you said, um, acculturating? Because um, you have talked about managed versus haphazard approach. Um, so if you you know, you're with the top executives and they all see the light and they're like, yes, we understand. Okay, it's, it's a subconscious thing. We want to go for that. Um, how do you get that into the organization so it's not just sort of it, it's random? It's so much fun. It, it, it is unbelievable. Uh, when uh, back many, many years ago, um, and I mentioned the way that I got into this was uh, through IBM, uh, in terms of all of a sudden I had a, a client that was Buick and it's like what the hell happened to my life I went from just being a solo practitioner to having to have a company and uh, Bob Coletta who was the general manager at the time uh, and was told that either Buick or Oldsmobile would go away and he was desperate to figure out how do I exemplify this brand and create an experience and uh, moved on that. So the thing that I find so amazing is if you get to see sweet people, and that's where the changes need to take place and the commitment needs to happen. Uh, we, did, uh, we do a thing called a clue scanning workshop. And in a clue scanning workshop, transformational change takes place that's unbelievable. So with one uh, uh, hardware chain in the country, uh, we were called in with a bunch of companies and they didn't intend to hire any of the companies. They just wanted to know what was going on in the world of experience management. And we talked about clues. And then they called us back and said, can you do one of these clue scanning workshops for our experience group? Well, then they scheduled the top 22 executives, including the CEO. And we did our clue scanning workshop. 
part of that workshop is sending people out on an assignment um, that is outside their, it's not going into a, a hardware store or building supplies organization. And uh, he was sent on a search for a kayak. And he came back and he said, I can't believe that everywhere I went and, and was ready to buy a kayak, no one asked me how I was going to get it home. <laughs> and within the next week, he allocated a budget to the customer experience group and accelerated those efforts by five or six times. So it's a transformation in mindset. And we find that clue consciousness is the key to opening people's eyes on that idea of haphazard versus intentional. Because probably 95%, well, maybe 90% of the experiences out there are haphazard. Excellent. Um, I, I don't know how we're doing on time here, Tom. I think we can take the last question. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of shift gears a little bit because um, we're in this COVID world, you know, and we're all sick of it, but we also have to deal with it as business people. And how would you say, Lou, how would you say that the, the composition and the importance of clues has changed given the crisis and, and people are going more online? And so what is, what is your opinion about how empathy becomes more important these days? Yeah, I think that what is so interesting is that in the State of the Union address, there were unconscious clues were so prevalent <laughs> that you couldn't miss picking up on them. But most people didn't realize that these were unconscious clues. They're, they're managed and emitted. And now all of a sudden, as we've hit COVID, um, what what is happening is I would call improvisational adaptation, where we're improvising rather than strategically and systematically trying to understand what we're trying to create. So uh, I think that COVID uh, has increased the sensitivity to clues um, and uh, the sensitivity to um, this feeling of disorientation unconsciously that we have mm -hmm. and the need to feel oriented. And I'm at a Walmart and, you know, here they're going through, uh, in the beginning, wiping down carts. I walked through five Walmarts last week. Only two were still cleaning the carts. The others were clean it yourself, buddy. Mm -hmm. And then I go to the cashless or the self-service area. And I'm having a problem working that. And all of a sudden, someone's face is over my shoulder. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, where's your clue consciousness here? And so I think we need to move from this improvisational adaptation to methodologically understanding that we live in a new world and becoming much more clue conscious and aware of that emotion and designing to that emotion. And I, I just see, I've been in healthcare institutions where every department handled it differently. So if I'm disoriented to begin with, you're adding, you're adding to even further unconscious disorientation inside your institution. 
Well, go go to Culver's and Panera. They're doing a they're they're doing a great job across the board. They really are week they after are. week, day after day. Yeah, so there's some good companies out there. Well, yeah. thanks, Lou. This has been amazing. Uh, we're gonna have to have you back again and again and again. Um, uh, you're a fountain of knowledge, and we really appreciate your uh, your companionship and your thoughts and your expertise. And I want to congratulate uh, Michigan State and, and you, Tom, and, and, and Bob. Um, I am so excited uh, for the, we actually, um, a couple of us presented the MSI talking about developing academic programs around experience management. And this master's program excites me to no end. I can go to my grave and rest I feel like the man of La Mancha. <laughs> well, we don't have it up and running yet, but we will. I, we will. We will. Yeah, it's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun ride, and we're and we're just so happy that you're along for the ride too. It's great to have you on the team. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so very much. And uh, as you can tell, I love this space and can talk well, about it for days. Well, <laughs> well, we'll definitely have you back, won't we, Bob? Oh yeah, that was great. Thanks, Lou. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tom and Bob Show. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and share it on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcasts, send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. After all, you're our customer. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.